Hey everyone, thanks for joining. I'm speaking with Carrie Smith again. Carrie is a co-host of the Unsafe Space podcast, and they also do Deprogrammed. Um, and Carrie is a self, self-confessed ex-woke person, ex-SJW. So I figure I asked her to come back on so we can have our own little struggle session about struggle sessions. Hey, Carrie, <laughs> thanks for coming on. Hi, Obeyed. I'm happy to be back here. Yeah. You made me laugh before the show. Can I tell people? Sure, go ahead. <laughs> Obey said, because I'm doing a juice fast, and he said, that's so dumb. Why would Your body needs nutrients. It's like believing in the – why would you do that? It's like believing in the secret. And I said, I do believe in the secret. Okay. <laughs> but but that's just it. Okay, like believing in the secret. If you've actually looked into it, right? I, I mean, I, I don't want to get into this. I don't want to have a big, huge – if you want, we can. But the woman who wrote the secret, if you go back to it, there was a – I believe the guy was a gender – in the 20s or the 30s, mm-hmm. came up with that idea. She she redid it in like whatever, the 90s or something like that. And then she spoke with, uh, what's that woman, um, Esther Hicks. And Esther Hicks had, had something to do with it. And then there's an interview with Esther Hicks on Oprah. And the only, the only reason I know this is because a friend of mine got into this and I just wanted to find out what it was. Okay. And there's Esther Hicks talking on Oprah. And she's like, I was reading, she was reading the, the Ramtha books. And if you don't know who Ramtha is, he was some woman, I can't forget her, uh, something Myers, I think. Uh, she said that he was a 30,000-year-old At- Atlantean spirit that possessed her, and she was speaking through him. So Esther Hicks said, well, I read the Ramtha books, and it just clicked, and then we started doing this. I mean, it's a scam from day one. It, well, you know, the- okay, here's what I think about it. <laughs> I haven't actually read them. I always thought it was a scam. It's only recently that I've started to think, huh, I had a friend who read The Secret was telling me about it. And so my opinion is based on not having read the book. But recently I changed my mind because the friend was telling me about what she believes The Secret's really about, the law of attraction or whatever. And I'm like, I actually believe in that. I just wouldn't call it the law of attraction. But I do believe in what you go out and and seek to create. Like going out with a positive frame of mind and knowing what it is you're pursuing and knowing what path you're on I think you will draw more of those things into your life it's almost like Jordan Peterson talks about the Matthew principle okay yeah no I, I, okay 100 percent I agree with that if you have a right. positive attitude and you are positive and you're helpful and you know you're generally a decent person you know people will be more or less decent to you like you know on average you know, you're gonna run to the assholes and stuff like that if you have a plan for what you want to do and you follow that plan and it basically just, okay, you have a big broad plan, you break it down into little steps, but then it adds the, the Deepak Chopra woo into it, right? Everything uh, is quantum. So they take the, they talk about the uncertainty principle, right? And they talk about the double split experiment. So the double slit experiment was when they, you pass, um, light through, well, electrons through two slits, there's no sensor, there's no nothing. When they hit the wall, they make a wave formation. As soon as you put a sensor there and you start measuring it, because to measure, it's so small, you have to use light to measure it. So when you measure it, you make it choose its state. And as soon as you make it choose its state, it goes from either a one or a zero. Before, it'll go wherever it wants and whatever the probability is. And so as soon as that sensor was there, it changed. So you only had two lines on the back of the wall, right? That When they went through the slit. So they take that and they say... And then there's the observer effect. Just by observing something, you change it, but that is at the quantum level. 
So they say that applies to a house. If you want that house, you picture that house in your head, you visualize that it's there. They tell you to put it out into the vortex. And if you listen to Esther Hicks, she's speaking to uh, a she's speaking to okay. a community of extra dimensional or extraterrestrial beings that yeah. are, okay, okay, like there is and then she calls them <laughs> Abraham. Uh you should watch her. She goes into like it, it's like people going into a uh you know when they a start speaking in uh, tongues and stuff like that okay. uh it's so they take that kernel of truth about the uncertainty principle and the observer effect and then they apply it macroscopically and it doesn't work macroscopically quantum rules we are, we are affected we are governed by quantum rules but we don't see them because if you follow the quantum law and you listen to quantum physics it's really really screwed up and i don't understand it like i'm a lay person and i'm butchering this beyond belief but <laughs> Well, you're doing but better than I would. Theoretically, you can lean up against a wall and there is a possibility where your state will become, like the space between your molecules will become big enough that you can slide through that wall. All right. And there is a probability of it. So all all particles are, so when you say a particle can either be a wave or a particle, like light can be either a wave or a particle, the wave in itself is the probability of where that particle will be. So where you see the waves high, like the crests, that's the highest probability. Where you see it go low, that's the lowest probability. Quantum physics will never tell you where that will go up. It'll tell you the probability. And the only way to find something out is to look at it. But to look at an electron, it's so small, you need a little bit of light. And however small that bit of light is you hit to hit that electron, you move it. So that's where the observer effect comes in. So you can know the spin of something or you can know the speed of it, but you can never know both. It's, it, it's, I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm butchering this. I'm, you know, like I wasn't planning on talking about this and I, I, I would have like done a little bit of a refresher, not sound like <laughs> such an idiot, but yeah. So that's where like the law of attraction and the secret and all that, they play off of that. And again, because of a friend of mine who was into this crap and I just, I'm like, what are you talking about? And I just went back and looked into it and it, you could follow the trail of bullshit all the way through to the law of attraction. So I don't deny that positive thinking helps. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't help. I don't deny that having a plan doesn't help. Because, you know, just say, yeah, I want to be a billionaire and you have no plan to do it. Good luck, right? You know, right. like, I want to win the lottery. It will help me if I buy a ticket. <laughs> no, no, but I'm just saying, if I want to win right. the lottery. If you want to buy a ticket, yeah. yes. But if I want to win the lottery and I want to do it by finding the winning ticket, yeah, <laughs> like, my chances go a lot more. Yeah. You know, like, and that's what this is kind, kind of is. It's It's like, okay, it's like critical race theory. Yes, racism exists, right? There's that mm -hmm. kernel of truth. Then all the other garbage that goes along with it. So that's why I, you know, like I said, I, I don't believe in it. There's nothing to believe in. It's it's just, it, it is a, once you get to the little metaphysics of it, it just turns to absolute garbage. Well, thank you for killing my joy, Obeyed. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Yeah, I know. I'm totally kidding. Well, okay. Well, well thank you for making me expend my emotional labor. <laughs> it was a really funny start to the morning. I just had to share it with everyone. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it was just, like I said, it just, that, that's why I'm like, the, it, it's that kind of stuff. But anyways, so struggle sessions. I want, the first okay. thing I really wanted to ask you is, because I've been talking to people about this, but that video from New York City, the the, the Council of Education, I don't know if you saw it, where they were, yes. oh, okay, when you were hanging out with your friends, when you were, you know, whatever, quote unquote, woke, however you want to describe it, was that what was, was that what hanging out was like? Okay, that's what it was like at conferences. Yeah. And 
sometimes at like meetings, like workshops or stuff, Mm -hmm. not hanging out like every day as friends, but anything official, Mm -hmm. it could easily go there because Mm -hmm. people are emboldened by this idea that they are, um, that they, if they check off more of the marginalized boxes than the privileged boxes, and you know, then they're more marginalized than you. And what I would often see is things would devolve into um, infighting over who was the most oppressed or who was somehow breaking one of the belief system's tenets, who was not being ideologically pure enough. So in the case of that New York City Council of Education video, he's not being ideologically pure because he's he's daring to have his friend's nephew uh, on his knee knee, who is i couldn't believe her screaming at him when people see a white man with a boy of color on his knee it it harms them what yeah that's when when you've really (laughs) swallowed so much garbage that your brain is turned to garbage (laughs) but like let's say with friends would there be like oh you know we're sorry but um X over here stepped out of line. We need to have an intervention. Like, would there be an intervention when someone's going not woke enough or like, is there would be, okay. So I was on the board of a couple different social justice theme nonprofits. Mm-hmm. There would be I, some, something similar to that when they, we, they felt that somebody again, wasn't being pure enough or wasn't being. So for example, this national group I was on the board of, I, I was in, I was on the, I helped with the LA chapter, the Los Angeles chapter. Mm-hmm. And the woman who really headed up the LA chapter, who did all the work, I just helped her out occasionally. Um, the at the national level, I got a call. They wanted to talk to her because they felt like she wasn't doing enough outreach to people of color to get them into the. It was a feminist group to get them into the group, and it was a, a huge. And then there was always like this backbiting between different chapter heads and stuff. The same kind of drama that you would see play out in a middle school, but it plays out around this ideology, you know. Or, or at one year, so she asked, she had different panels happening at Santa Monica College, and she asked a lot of the different women who came to our meetings and stuff to be on the panels. So one of those women who, uh, an Asian woman, ended up putting her on blast on like a public email chain with every woman in the LA group on it, or at least those in leadership Mm -hmm. positions. And it was like, you know... I see what you're doing and I see you're using us women of color on your panels as tokens and you're bringing us in so we can educate the white people. And it was like, wait a minute, two years ago, you everybody was bitching that she didn't have enough people of color. Now it's like, now you have people of color and we're, t- you know, you can never win in this belief system. And it was a huge drama thing. Like, you know, that she, she's just using it, using our labor and using us to educate people. It's like, okay, but when it wasn't enough women of color on the panels, you everybody was pissed. Like, <laughs> no, but it's, but that, I mean, that's just it. It's all it is is looking. It's trying to find problems in the most trivial things. Yeah. I, I mentioned this to you earlier. Like, I because I've read so much of this, I'm starting to see it everywhere. I, I'll give you. A, I'm a geek. The only th- the only TV show I like watching is Jeopardy. Aside from sports, but the nice. only. I, so the last couple of weeks have been showing some repeats, I guess, because of COVID or whatever, right? And there was one episode where there was an Indian guy and two white contestants. The question was related with either Hinduism or with India. One of the white contestants gets it right. And then Alex says, oh, blah, 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 you know, too bad for so-and-so. You know, I guess he's a little embarrassed that he didn't answer the question about India. 
and right away in my head is like Alex is cancelled oh my god like and oh, then I'm yeah. like and I'm like and, and how dare that white person answer that question about India and not let the you know person yeah. <laughs> like like right away it just took me about 10 seconds and I'm like you know what that's doing Abe, is you are even though you're not a social justice warrior um, the cultures become so dominant and you're starting to understand it well enough that you have a little internal SJW in your head. <laughs> yeah, but, but but it's like it's the pro- like it's to problematize everything. It's to find the problem yeah. and everything. I'm like, why do you want to live like that? Why do you want to? It's such a depressing way to live. I mean, there is enough shit that's going on. Yeah. Why do you want to create more out of nothing? Like yeah. that's that's the one thing I don't understand. Like I can understand religion more or less, right? I I can get where that's coming from. I don't agree with it. I think a lot of it's hooey, but there is an internal structure with this. Like you said, if you, not enough people of color, that's racism. Too many people of color, that's racism. You know, uh, silence is consent. Silence is violence. And if you speak up too much, you're, you're centering it on yourself. You're taking it off people of color. Like, there, I mean, you can find problems in everything. And like, like I don't know how people it's, can do this for any sustained amount of time because no, it's, it's trying, it's, tiring. It's tiring. And somebody tagged me in this photo this morning. I want to show this to you. She said her friend shared this. And this is her her white friend who's read White Fragility three times. Oh, good okay. <laughs> so she could really let the bullshit soak in. Um, this is something she shared. And I'll, I'll just read it to you. But it's a little graphic of mm-hmm. a rabbit. And the rabbit is saying, repeat after me. No matter how open-minded, socially conscious, anti-racist I think I am, I still have old learned hidden biases that I need to examine. It is my responsibility to check myself daily for my stereotypes, prejudices, and ultimately discrimination. And it's like you're in this constant daily, um, like just an unhealthy mental space. It's it's basically like every day wake up and tell yourself that you're, uh, you have unexamined, prejudices and racisms and bigotries that you're not aware of but they're there and you better seek them out you better find them you better find where they are but it's (laughs) i mean and the other thing that i always i I just don't like you were mentioned it earlier who's got the most oppression points yeah they make a value out of being a victim and i mean okay this is nothing against people who've been victimized or people who've been victims but the honor in that is picking yourself up carrying on and you know like there's the the thing out of victim it's like and again not to you know i don't want to tell anyone how to be a you know if i've spoken to like um grooming gang survivors from the uk and if these people are having trouble getting back into society i understand it i'm not holding them down for it but they're still trying right they're putting themselves forward and they're trying there is the virtue in, in victimhood is you overcoming it and doing whatever you can you might not you know, you might not be the top of your field. Or you might not have bounced back 100%, but that attempt is what's important, not just the fact that you're a victim. And they like they make that the final goal. Like, you're a victim, then you deserve special respect and special treatment. And we're going to glorify you for being a victim. And as soon as you stop, then we're going to hate you. And I, like... Yeah. It, it's, it's, if, if yeah, as long, if you're not claiming the victimhood, if you're not speaking the ideology, there's no one they hate more than people who check off marginalized boxes and don't speak their, their belief system. Um, mm. But 
about the victimhood stuff, you know, I was having a conversation with my boyfriend about this the other night and we were thinking about, so, so the way that they, one of, because one of the things that they say that this is, that they declare is a fact, right, is this whole idea of privilege and that if you're in any of the so-called privileged or oppressor groups, that you universally have this privilege. But the, one of their short, and, and bear with me because I'm just still thinking, mm-hmm. teasing this out. One of the, the shortcomings, it's something they completely ignore, is the fact that they also teach about intersectionality, which is that we all have multiple different identities. And so we can check off mm-hmm. different, some marginalized mm-hmm. boxes and some privileged boxes and that these identities intersect, right? Mm-hmm. And these create an individual. But they never actually take that that to its logical conclusion, which is that the end result of intersectionality is you get back to the individual, that every individual person has a multitude of individual marginalizations and privileges that you can't really calculate. How do you weigh those? You can't look, you can't, I can't look at you and you can't look at me and we can't know how easy each other's life has been just based on what boxes we check off. And um, they, they, they kind of ignore that. And so if you look at me, they would say, I'm privileged because I'm white, I'm marginalized because I'm a woman. And then there's a whole other list of boxes, right? But some of the most, the, the, the things which most privileged people and which most marginalized people, they never talk about those things. Like as a kid, it is, it is on average, you're going to, you have a much greater chance of being success, successful if you grow up in a stable home with two parents, mm-hmm. right? Um, they never talk about that. They never talk about child abuse. They never talk. So, so for me, for example, my greatest privilege in life is one that they never talk about. The, I would say the biggest privilege I had was that I was born in America, I'm an American, but that's not something to talk about. Um, I'd probably say my second greatest privilege is that I came from a middle-class home and we had means and I could go to college. But my my greatest marginalization is that I grew up in an abusive home and that did untold damage to me and my siblings as children. So not, my greatest marginalization is not that I'm a woman. It, 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 I'm just saying this objectively. Is, yeah. is if I look at and I don't think my greatest privilege is that I'm white. Do I think that is a privilege? Yeah, in some ways. Um, but but when they start to rank all these things and weigh them, it's like, how do you weigh an individual's, like everything that's happened in their life that's helped to marginalize or privilege them in some ways? You can't, but they pretend that you can and that it's some universal thing and that, that somebody can walk into my home and I can know who they are and I can know their level of power and privilege and marginalization. You, it's just impossible to do that. No, yeah, and okay, like the individualism thing, that, that's it, like. You see, I'm seeing it more and more. Um, you know, they don't care that no individual, like, okay, the system is racist. It's systemic racism. And, you know, you can get down to what they mean by the system. Like, they don't mean the police system is racist. They don't mean, you know, the medical system is racist. The whole system, on what that was built on, is racist. So, there could be no individual act of racism for, like, let's say, the last 50 years. And you could prove it to them according to their bases and they could agree uh, no like no individual act of racism has occurred but they'll still say the racism is the, the system is is racist there is systemic racism and we still have to undo the system they don't care how that will hurt the individual like all those yeah. stores that got burned down you know immigrant stores yeah. oh your property is violence they, they don't care about that They're like oh you were taking yeah. part in the system you know if we'll, like what was what was the end goal like did you you know, burn down the system. That's one thing. But what was 
the plan to to build something up like what was yeah. the replacement they don't have the secret obeyed they don't have a plan <laughs> no, but- no but they don't there's nothing that, that you're you're calling out what they really are versus what they say they are mm. i mean they're ultimately I, I on the large large scale i view this ideal this ideology is destructive oh totally it's completely destructive. It's not about building anything, and it's not about it. It's not about any of the positive things that it disguises itself as. It's not about equality. It's not about tolerance. It's not about anti-racism or feminism. It's about destruction, sexism, racism, divisiveness, tearing people apart. Like that's what this is. And but it does such a good job of hiding itself that you know I was I was in it for two decades. I'm in a place now where now that it's become dominant culturally mainstream i believe in the past month or so i have a lot of parents contacting me who listen to our podcast or who've come across me on social media or some for some reason and they want to know because i left it they want to know like hey my kids are getting pulled into this or my kids have been pulled into this and what can i do and how can i talk to them and it's like there's no great easy answer um and even if you look at me as a hopeful example i was in it for two decades that's a long time yeah um i was speaking to uh so benjamin boyce was speaking about it this the other day and i you know what i said to him was because we were getting to i don't want to say an argument but we were going back and forth about the definition of whiteness and because it was that woman from cambridge that professor who said you know i want to abolish whiteness and white lives don't matter as white lives and then she ended up getting a promotion at Cambridge. Wow, I missed that. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, and he's like, well, that's what it's all about, right? I'm like, yes. You know, eventually it's to kill white people. Like, yo, know, it can be taken to the extreme of kill whitey. But I want to deal with it as it is and what they say because that's bad enough. And this is my approach. And I'm not saying this is the right approach. It's the only approach. But if you can... If you can lay out what whiteness is and explain it to them, explain it to someone who's like, well, this sounds like a good idea. And then most rational people will say that's, that's insane. And they'll leave it alone. So I look at it like it's a convert to Islam or it's a convert to Scientology or whatever. This is what this is. You're going into this thing. You don't know exactly what you're going into. You know, and I'm not, I, I tell them straight out, like, don't believe me, read these things. I give them a list of books I read. I pass them to, you know, James Lindsay's website there, New Discourses. I said, yeah. go look at that. Because if you can stop them before, if you can stop someone before they become a fundamentalist, it's a lot easier than to then de-radicalize. To them. Yes. And so, I mean, I, I look at, you know, that's the idea that um, Faisal Al-Motar has and Melissa Chen have with Ideas Beyond Borders, right? Get the ideas out there that are missing in the Middle East. Get people exposed to those instead of just the, you know, fundamentalist Islam. So that yeah. you don't have to worry about de-radicalizing. You, you, they haven't become radicalized. So that's, like I said, that's my personal approach. Um, I like it. It's to stop, because it is becoming so common. And right, I mean, right away, as soon as the protest started, um, or maybe even a day or two before, I mean, I think they started right away, but I saw people on my Facebook, and these are friends of mine who are the same age as me, who aren't in academia, who didn't do this stuff in schools. I met some of these people on military bases. They're working in the oil fields and they're talking about their privilege and they're asking other people why yes. they're feeling fragile. And I'm like, yeah. you know, it's, you've never talked about this before. And all of a sudden you're using this language. Where is it coming from? 
Where's it coming from? There were women in my church group. This is what this is what let me realize. This is what helped me to realize how dominant it is now. There were women in my church group that I had been going to in Austin. I'm not going to this church anymore because it's clear to me that this beliefs. Well, I had already kind of found a new church, and um, but then now it's become clear to me that this ideology is going to probably rot my old church from the inside out. Um, but there were ladies in my church group who've never talked about this stuff before, have never been in this ideology before, who, like you're saying, suddenly their Facebook posts go from being pictures of the family and look what a great life I have to being, uh, you know, let's talk about white privilege and let's exa- And I'm like, this, by the way, I've been in Bible study with you, women's Bible study for over a year or so. And this is the ideology I've been talking about the whole time. And you say you can't. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, well, yeah. I was just shocked. I was shocked. But yeah, it's it, it the seeds of this belief system have been spread so far and wide that I think what happened was that, you know, because I was indoctrinated over 20 years ago and I've been go until I de- deconverted or came out of it a few years ago, I would go out. I pushed on everyone I met. I pushed it. You know, I spoke as if we all agreed on these things. And if you didn't, and then I would take it as an opportunity to educate you on the new definition of (laughs) racism, you know, yeah, or my white privilege, you know, and I, I pushed it. And so the the seeds are everywhere. All that it's taken now, they, they basically, it could have been any awful event, but they, they took the death of George Floyd. They took that killing and they've. Um, exploited it and they've used it to, I think, move the ideology into a new phase. So now the phase is you have normies like that lady from my church group or like some of the we know normies who are suddenly speaking it and it's like, where did this come from? Because it's saturated all of culture now. All the corporations are speaking it. Yep. At McDonald's feed is nothing. It's just woke, 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 woke. It's disgusting. But Governments are speaking it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you saw this. Um, if you haven't, I'll, I'll send it to you. It's a, a Twitter thread someone did, and um, it was a C- city of Seattle held a training session for white employees called Interrupted Internalized Racial, uh, Ra- racial Superiority and Whiteness. This is internalized racial superiority for white people. This is what makes up whiteness. Perfectionism, individualism, imp- imposition, arrogance, paternalism, silence, intellectualization, control, violence, comfort, appropriation, cognitive dissonance, objectivity. And, objectivity. Yeah, okay, now there's this from there. These people are doing a workshop. This is, that was from Seattle. And this is from, these guys are doing an online workshop. It's called like uh, Trout Leadership or something like that. Just give me a second. Um, uh, sorry, I'll get it. It's on my... Um, but it's basically the same thing. They said they want to dismantle white supremacy in the class, white supremacist culture in the classroom. And this is listing white supremacist culture in the classroom. Perfectionism, power hoarding, sense of urgency, fear of open conflict, defensiveness, individualism again, quantity over quality, progress is bigger is more, worship of the written word, objectivity. They're going after... So the enlightenment. They're going after the enlightenment. They're going after the enlightenment. They want to destroy, this ideology seeks to destroy Western civilization. It seeks to destroy all the values of the Enlightenment. And what's funny about objectivity and individualism is 
they used to kind of cloak those things, the fact that those were enemies, and now they're just out in the open, like individualism is the devil, yeah. and individualism is, yeah. The craziest thing they say that I've heard people actually hear is they say individualism is a tool of white supremacy. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. White supremacy is a collectivist belief system, just like social yeah. justice ideology. It's collectivism. Individualism is the antidote to both. But they, but it's enough because a lot of the people who repeat this stuff, they're not thinking people. That woman from my church is not a think. I don't think she's going to sit down and think about what does collectivism mean, what does individualism yeah. mean. Oh, okay, that doesn't make sense. It's but yeah, it's, <laughs> it's little sound bites like you know, yeah. don't you want to be anti-racist? If you don't know anything behind it, I mean, if I didn't know any of this stuff and someone said, wouldn't you want to be anti-racist? It sounds like a good thing, right? Yeah. And then when you explain it to someone, like I explained some of this stuff to my mom and she's looking at me like, she, these people are crazy. And my mom's in her seventies. Like she's never heard this before. And she just looks, but I, okay. Like this whole thing, like I saw it again, uh, yesterday, you know, two plus two equals four is a, is a white way, white person's way of doing things. This is white people's math. I'm like, really? That's what it said. Yeah. And then they're going straight to the or Orwell. Oh, they said two plus two equals four is white people's math. And then that woman, she deleted her tweet, but it was someone with a blue check mark. That woman, um, Nicole Hannah Jones, who wrote the 1619 project there, the revisionist yeah. history. You know, it's, oh no, mathematics is a, she said mathematics is a white way of doing it. And how dare you use Arabic numerals to prove a white person's point. It's like, if it's Arabic numerals, then it's not a white way of doing white things, you doing idiot. It. And, first, and, and again, Arabic numerals, they came from India. The Arabs stole them wow. from India, and we know them as Arabic numerals because we got yeah. them from the Middle East. You know, like there's a quote, I, I might have told you this before, there's a quote from um, Plato talking about Egypt, and he says, look at the little children in Egypt, and they play games with math that men in Greece don't understand, and he compared children, he compared men in Greece to pigs or dogs compared to the children in Egypt, because the children in Egypt knew math so much better than the people in Greece. Okay, Egypt is North Africa. Like, give me a goddamn break. This is not white people thing. Like, you think the Incas and the Aztecs, when they built their pyramids and figured out how the how Venus went across the sky, like, you know, yeah. like, like they didn't know mathematics? Like, it's yeah. like, you know, worship of the written word. Where would we be without the written word? Like, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Or objectivity. Lights up. That's amazing. <laughs> They're trying to attack objectivity. I mean, oh, there's... But what is so frustrating about it for me, and I'm feeling this right now, is sometimes, yeah, you know, we spend the whole podcast. It's not all we talk about. We talk about other things. We but but on deprogrammed, it is what we it it is always what we talk about. And and by necessity, so on a deprogrammed is a show that we do whenever we have a topic that relates to my old belief system or somebody we want to interview about it that um, is going to come at it from a different angle than we do a deprogrammed episode. But Daily Confuffy is a live show that we do on Mondays and Fridays. But just because of how the ideology is ramped up in the past few years, we necessarily talk about this on Daily Confuffy now all the time, too. It's just we yeah. have it, it just is what's going on. Right. Yeah. Um, but so we talk about it quite a bit. My frustration comes from sometimes feeling like this is so patently, obviously wrong and awful. Why do I have to keep pointing out? how awful it is because someone like that woman at my church, for example, if you, if I were to say like, they're, they're attacking objectivity and individualism. Like, can't you see this? Why do we have, that should be the end of the conversation that this is a, this is a bad ideology. They're attacking science. Okay. Yeah. You know, Oh, shut down STEM. 
decolonize science. And people are like, oh, well, they just want to be, make science accessible to everyone. Science is accessible to everyone, right? Yeah. It, again, I'll, I'll go back to the, the, the religion thing. If you just go follow some ex-Muslim women's accounts, just follow them for a couple of days. And, Who would you suggest, by the way? Uh, I mean, I, I know some of these, but just okay. For there's Zara Kay. Uh, there is uh, Ilan Mania. She's actually a reformed Muslim. She's in Switzerland. There's Astra Nomani. Uh, there's a, a woman in... Um, oh, I uh, know some of these. Uh, there's a woman in California. She's a friend of mine. She's ex-Mormon, ex-Muslim. She was raised Mormon, then she converted to Islam. Now she's ex-both. Uh, you can find her as uh, Murtad Mili. Um but what I'm saying is when you look at the, the hate they get from mm-hmm. Muslims, it's like you left Islam because you want to, you know, you want to fuck white men. You left Islam because you want, you're a slut. You want to be a whore. Guys get some of this too, but the women just get it the worst. And one of the, one of them recently, um, you know, she was like, I support Black Lives Matter, but I don't support the organization. Like I lo- support the statement on the organization, which is right. the same thing. You know, Valid, same. same. Uh, and, you know, she was told, well, the only reason you're doing this is because you want white dick. The exact same thing. Wow. Now, you look at people like, okay, I'm not a fan of Candace Owens, but you look at some of the stuff she gets, or people like Coleman Hughes or John McWhorter or, you know, Camille Foster. Oh, you're an Uncle Tom. You're a coon. You know, you're a house slave. And they don't use the term slave. You know, and then you look at like Majid Nawaz. Uh- it's the same hate. Yeah, it's the exact same hate. It's the same thing. Now, there was a guy, like, right when the riots and everything started and the protests, um, a couple of people did these things on, uh, they put out the threads, and if you want, I'll send them to you there. It's about media. And so they show, it was, like, pretty stable up until around 2000, it started going up. But then by the time, a little bit, but by the time Obama's first term comes in, you just see this explosion. It's just an exponential growth. So by the time Obama's first term started, it almost doubled. And by the time 2015 came around, it almost tripled. The amount of times they used the word racism, racist, white supremacist, uh, you know, privilege, all those things. Another guy just did it on articles. It was basically the same thing, like just tripled. Right. Yeah. So you had them pushing this. You had them pushing that. And I'm like, uh, if you... You're getting this kind of stuff. People are buying into it. It's so that, you know, you, you get the same hate for ex-Muslims as you do for people who are speaking mm-hmm. out against this. People are seeing this more and more and more. So it's like they're, it's becoming indoctrinated. So you, like, you were told one way to look at things. And I mean, like saying you can go back and you can look at in the early 2000s, Majid Nawaz being called a house Muslim. You know, yeah. uh, a native informant and not even the early 2000s, like you know, t- 2012, 2013, you know, Sarah Hader, uh, you know, another like very reasonable person. She's being called uh, a native informant, you know, Uncle Tom, race trader. And it's the exact same things like these that they think in the exact same way. It's it is so scary how religious like this stuff is. Yeah. And it's, it's very fundamentalist. And you know, people are going to say, don't it attack is my fundamentalist. You know, like. I don't know if you know Paul Vanderclay. Um, oh my gosh, Obeid, we yeah. just got to interview him. We're oh, he's awesome. Episode. Paul's great. So coming out this week, maybe today, on yeah. the program with yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, Paul's awesome. I mean, okay, like Paul's a pastor. I'm an atheist. We've had you know a couple of conversations. I want to like he invited me on his Discord server. I don't go on much because whatever. I'm a luddite and I don't know how to use it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
No, but I mean, like Paul, like I can have a, I can have a more reasonable conversation with Paul than mm-hmm. I can do with one of these so-called progressives. Yes, because they are, like you said, they're fundamentalists. Yeah. Yo. And there's no room for yeah. any kind of, there's no room for conversation. Nope. I'm surprised on their list of things they're attacking as whiteness. I'm surprised they didn't have conversation on there. Conversation and civility and dialogue, you know? Yeah. But I mean, that's just it. Like, the things that they list off, I mean, that should be a red flag to you. That should be a red flag to anyone. That, you know, they're saying civility is a white person's thing. Like, there was one this morning. She was arguing with um, James Lindsay. And she's saying that, Ar- like arson was only a crime in North arson was only a crime because white people invented it as a crime and it's a white law. And that's why burning down buildings in North America doesn't matter because it was stolen from people of color. I'm like, okay, but first of all, there was arson law. I, I, and I was like, I, I, as soon as I heard, it, I'm like, that's ridiculous. Japan builds everything out of wooden paper. They must've had some sort of arson laws in medieval Japan. And yes, sure enough, like, you know, they go back to the 1200s. Like there were arson laws in ancient Egypt. Like, you know, it's just, they say these things and, and it's, you know, verifiably untrue, but people like, oh, there was no word for rape in North America until the settlers came. That's like, right. You know, there was no English word for rape because the English brought it with them, you idiots. <laughs> like, I'm sure they had a concept of it. Like, they, they had a concept of it. You know? Yeah, but uh, maybe there's no word for rape because it wasn't considered wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Who or, knows? Or, yeah, I mean, or whatever. Like, Saudi Arabia has less rape than the United States, but it's okay to rape your wife because if your wife refuses sex, the angels will curse her all night long, right? I mean, wow. it's, just, it's ridiculous. It's just... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you said you were talking about the stats on the media yeah. using words racism yeah. and white supremacy. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you the there links. Oh, okay, cool. Okay. There's two I'll people. One person's. Uh, I think they're doing. Uh, that's what they're doing their PhD on. And I can't remember how the other what the other person was doing. Like, if I really had, if I knew what tools they used, I'd like to do it for Islam and uh, Islamophobia. Because I was speaking to a friend of mine recently, and I, I was joking around. I said, you know what? If you look at when this stuff came into schools, you look at when, I, like this specific iteration of it, and you know, around the late nineties is when these people started coming out with intersectional masters and stuff, right? Yeah. So they started going to media. Bush gets elected, so you might have one or two people in media, right? And they're pushing yeah. this thing that, well, America's racist because it's against Islam. Islam is a brown person's religion, so yeah. that was like proof of concept. And by the time Obama comes around, they just push the racism thing because they've got enough people in there that they could push yeah. crazier and crazier stuff. I, okay, this is a tinfoil hat. This is a tinfoil hat theory, whatever. But that's what I'm thinking. Like the, the Islamophobia thing was a proof of concept. Obed, whether or not it was that you, you've accurately described how this worked, though. Yeah. It's like the, so the people my age. I'm uh, 41, so I preached this for about 20 years. I was indoctrinated in college. People my age went into media, mm-hmm. journalism, uh, entertainment like I did, academia, and big social. A lot of my mm-hmm. old friends work for Google, like a, a lot, you know, YouTube, mm-hmm. places like that. They're Facebook. They're, we went in and we were taught to push this as like little activists and whatever our career was, whatever our field was, this was primary. And 
I think at the beginning, like I think back to my early years in entertainment, I was definitely in the minority in terms of being, I was known as, I managed comedians, I was known as being the feminist manager. I was a bit of a weirdo. <laughs> like I was the one who was, you know, I'm, I guess I'm always going to go against the, the group, huh? Because originally I was like the one SGW manager pushing crap. And now I'm the one who's like, guys, no. And they're all, like, they've all become woke now. But um <clears throat> But yeah, it, there was when when we when we first people my age I think first moved into spaces, we would find other people who shared our ideology, you know. And the more you find, the better, and you can push it further. But wow, where it's at now, I don't I don't think I ever could have imagined. Like the old me would be very happy. The old me would be like, yeah, we're succeeding, we're changing the world, we're making it better. Um, I really I was a true believer. I wasn't cynical about it. I believed this was a good belief system and that it was about eradicating the world of racism and sexism. I was just very naive about the fact that I was being used to push those very things. Um, but, uh, but yeah, once we've reached a critical mass where gosh, any company now, you don't need it to be the whole company. You don't need it to be the whole, uh, workplace. You just need enough of them and they need to be loud enough. And the culture at large needs to change enough, which it has now where it's accepted this, that, I mean, you can you can talk about people being canceled. You can get anyone thrown out of the workplace now. Like, but okay, the lawsuits are coming. I've already seen a couple in New York City. There's a woman suing the Department of Education. She worked there, and she's saying like it was basically anti-white racism. Um, there are, uh, I believe, there's Asian parents that are going after the school system. Yeah, uh, there's. Um, I've seen one from California too. Uh, yeah, a and, yeah, and so. I'm sorry, this thing from the city of Seattle, like that's, okay, that's institutional racism. Yeah, fine. Yeah. You know, way to go. Now we have it. Now you have something to fight. It's like they created the thing they wanted to fight. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's like, they, they, oh, they're, they're, they're okay, here's another, um, sorry, this, the, I, I wanted to mention this to you. You might want to get some tinfoil because okay. you're going to get dumber after hearing this, but I'm, I'm going to say something really stupid and I'll explain it. Okay. Okay. This whole thing comes down to travel mugs. What? Uh, okay. Come, okay. Right. Have you ever called your local phone company or your internet provider or your cable company and you're speaking to the, cell, uh, the, the, help, the help person, the support person, and you know they're going off a list, right? Like they just don't deviate yeah. from that list. <coughs> you go online, you got to fill out insurance. They make everything so easy. You don't have to think. We're losing the ability to think. They're make they they're making you safe. They want to make everything so simple. Yeah. So that's why I say the travel mugs. When adult, it's basically a sippy cup for adults. When adults admit they need a sippy cup, they're admitting they can't do anything for Christ's sakes. So yes. it's like, but no, but I mean, it's it's this it, need to feel safe, and it's making everything. It's making us dumber. Sorry, I'm just. When I was in Haiti, I noticed this. The people there, there was very few people who would think for themselves. Like. I had got, like, we had to hire, hire local people. So I was working in charge of the IT. We hired local IT staff. One of the things I said was, okay, you know, everything's ready for this office. I'd like you guys to go deploy all the computers, get them all ready on all the desks. When it's all done, come back and we'll make sure everything works. They come back and they tell me, yeah, we put all the computers on the desks. Should we put the monitors as well? Because I didn't specifically tell them to put the monitors. They only put the computers. Okay. Now that's what this kind of thinking is like. So when yeah. you call... When you call that support person, they they only know to go off that list. They don't know, you know, don't. yeah, anything different. Like you're asking them for a piece of information, but it's not on that list, so they don't know how to give it to you. 
you know, that's we, a great. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Well, that's a great analogy. Yeah, because they they repeat the, what they've been told. So this is you. You will see them repeating silence is violence without yeah. having thought about what that means yeah. and whether they actually agree yeah. or. Um, but when you try to get them to go off script, when you ask them, that's one of the best things I think you can do for someone who's got pulled into it. Mm-hmm. And somebody gave me this. I was asking, what's the best advice to get people who you know who yeah. have friends who are getting pulled into this or family. And if you can ask questions that force them to go off script and think for themselves, you might have some a chance of them, like of a seed being planted maybe to combat it. But it is like a script they're reading. Yeah. So if you if you ask something that's going to cause that cognitive dissonance, it's funny they put cognitive dissonance on there about whiteness <laughs> because this whole this ideology is built on cognitive dissonance. If you know, silence is violence, but words is violence. Like, how do you reconcile those two things? How can speech and silence be violence? Um, you know, there there are some easy questions that would kind of cause any anybody that's got a bit of a functioning brain left to like think about to before they could answer. And I think you really have to ask those questions in love too, not in a gotcha uh, way. Yeah, no, not exactly. A, yeah. Okay, I'll give you an example. Well, two examples with with myself. Um, before COVID shut everything down. There's a little pub near my house. Every Monday night, they had a cribbage. They played cribbage, so I went there. And one of the nights, one of the guys who plays, he brought his girlfriend. And I was playing one of the games against her. And we just started talking, right? Like, we're playing a game of cribbage. We're talking. She mentions that she's taking cultural studies. And so I asked her some. Like, I wasn't like, I, you know, I said, what are you doing? Whatever. And some of the stuff came up. And I just stopped her for a second. And she's like, oh, well, you know. And then I went through a list of things of, you know, like, where some of these ideas came from, like that Plato quote and things like that, like where math comes from. And I said, well, how can you say that this is all whiteness? So you're, you're denying your, you always know, played, there's 20 minutes to play cribbage. We're in a pub where, you know, there's a few of us playing in that group. You know, we're talking back and forth by the end of the night, you know, she like, she's like took down the, you know, my podcast name. She said, I'll go listen to it. I don't know if she did or not, but at least she was like, okay. I just told her, I said, I just laid out some facts. I wasn't yelling. I wasn't screaming or anything yeah. like that. I was just like, yeah. you know, how can you reconcile? Like you said, how can you reconcile this with this? And at that same place, a couple of weeks later, it was um, uh, some random person there and she was speaking to a friend of mine and they started talking about quantum physics. So I got interested and I started talking and then her and I started talking and then, you know, this whole the queer ideology comes up because she says, "Oh, I'm queer and blah blah blah." And I, you know, and I started talking about the books I'd read. And I started talking about and because I haven't read a lot of queer theory, I've read a lot of critical race theory and intersectionality. Right. But you know, I've read a little bit of Gail Rubin, a little read a little bit of Judith Butler. Even if you, you know, you go back to Foucault, Butler, yeah. you know, he's got like some of the queer stuff in his things. And then I got her to explain to me how Pete Buttigieg was not a gay man. Right? You know, like the whole thing, he's not yeah. really gay, he's just a man who sleeps with other no. men. And okay. so she, she started going through it. She took It took her about 20 minutes. By the end of it, she was giggling and she was laughing. She couldn't keep a straight face, but she was still holding yeah. on to her belief that, oh, no, 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 he, you know, just because cause he's got so much privilege, he's not really gay because yes. he doesn't have, and, and it was just, but like, just That's her explaining. now about race too. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really black. Yeah. But her just walking, talking me through it, right? Like I just asked her the question, like, and then she's doing it in her head. And then she's realizing yeah. kind of how silly it was. And she's giggling. I mean, she, I didn't make her a non-believer or anything. Yeah. But, but it makes her realize, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, just a that's bit. good. That's a great example. Yeah. Just planting a seed yeah, that maybe uh, makes them think a little bit more. Okay. And again, I'll use Majid Nawaz. I have some issues with Majid about his reform, but I think on the whole, he's okay. He's a good person. But 
what they're talking about the de-radicalization with Quilliam. He said, like, one of the biggest things is to plant a seed of doubt. So you don't want to convert this person from Islam to being an atheist. You yeah. want to convert this person from being a Muslim who's willing to go kill the infidel in the morning to being a Muslim who will just cheer on the person who kills the infidel, right? You want to right. plant enough doubt so they take one step back. So that's, I mean, honestly, like, it's... That's a great way of putting it. You have to look at... They are in a cult. If it's your friends, your family, there's going to be a lot of recrimination. They're going to they're going to say hateful things towards you. Be ready to forgive them if and when they decide to leave this. And it's not yeah. forgiveness out of you're better than them and aha. Like it's you know actual. They they've been caught yeah. up in a, they've been caught up in a really screwed up way of thinking. And yeah, but I mean the best thing is to ask questions and let them answer it. And okay, this is my opinion. And like again different people have different approaches but if you get them to explain those inconsistencies you might cause just a little bit of doubt in them yes and then slowly you can chip that away that's why i say it's better to do it before they get radicalized than it is after yeah i totally agree mm. well that's what carter on our show he he really focuses on people who haven't yet been indoctrinated about inoculating them against it, you know, and, and, and he kind of laughs at me because he says, I tend to be more like he sees the burning building and he starts digging a moat around the building, but I'm running in the building trying to pull people out, like come out of this ideology. It's going down. <laughs> so, but I don't know. I don't spend, I, I guess I, I do a little of both when I talk, I'm hoping that people who haven't, bought into it yet hear what i'm saying and that it does inoculate them against it but yes part of me does i hope that there are people who are in it who can also i do think of that person i do think of my old self yeah. and what would my old self what would make my old self question or start to think about things you know yeah, and again like i said you know my approach is one way of doing things and it doesn't mean that i only do that right like if i like you know, that woman i came across in the pub and it wasn't my intention to go to that pub that night and aha, I'm going to convert someone, right? We just started talking. And when I started talking, yeah, I, I, I had no clue. And it just, because it, I honestly was curious. And I think she saw that I was curious, right? And, um, you know, I think she appreciated the fact that I'd read a lot of intersectionality and a lot of critical race theory. Yeah. Like, you know, at least I showed her that I wasn't ignorant about this stuff. So you knew what you were talking about. Yeah. yeah. And so that's why I think, again, you know, you can't, deconvert someone from islam if you don't know anything about it you can't deconvert someone from christianity if all you know is that jesus is the son of god right like that's a, you need to know more than that so don't fall for the yeah, oh yeah don't fall for the, the 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 bs um don't fall for the little simple explanations and really go looking deep into it um look i don't so, want to go ahead Struggle sessions. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't even really have much, but I mean, it was just. Yeah. It, we were just kind of talking about them. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. Oh. There have been. There have been. I mean, th there are a lot of these these workshops now where people can go and uh, inter. It's called interrogating their yeah. whiteness, and uh, those are becoming more prevalent now i think those people who run those this, i think of them as snake oil salesmen oh, they're gonna be making a lot more money now that this has gone mainstream because now that you've learned that your whiteness is a problem how do you deal with it <laughs> right like um so those things almost operate as struggle sessions when you're in the room you know i, I really want to go to one of these undercover 
as a white lady. Oh God. I mean, I, I'd love to go to one of them. Okay, I took one of these in uh, 2014, and it wasn't quite this, right? It was so I started working for a government, and it was up in northern Canada, so there was Inuit, so there was cultural sensitivity training, and it was the first time they were giving this specific ba- brand of training. And this guy was spouting some of this, but I don't think he had any clue what he was talking about. He was just reading off, you know. And there was m- myself and this other woman who were in this course. Because at one point, he was talking about how you have to look at people when they say something, they're thinking it's coming from a place of good. So he said, you know, Hitler thought he was doing good, which fine, whatever, I can accept that. And then he goes through his argument, which the argument wasn't bad, because if you look at Hitler didn't do it because he thought, I'm the most evil person in the world, he thought he was doing good, right? Right. Um, But then he says, so like the person who wrote it, his name was, you know, so-and-so. And he goes, his last name is Jewish and his first name is Jewish, so he's doubly Jewish. And I mean, this guy was teaching us cultural sensitivity. So me and this other woman were like, pardon? Like, what are you yeah. saying in this class? And like, there was a eight- woman from HR taking a course with us because this was the first time this course was, so she was evaluating it. We're like, how can you talk about cultural sensitivity when you say something like that? Yeah. Like, oh, and, 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 and I mean, the the guy was talking about, again, the Crusades. Is Oh, there was, a, you know, the couple of Crusades. I, I just, I'm like, no, there was at least a dozen major Crusades. And there was like, you know. <laughs> hundreds of little minor ones like oh the two crusades i'm like there was like it was just just call the fact like i'd like to go there just call the bullshit out especially if it's a white person because yeah. i'll play the brown card i will i don't want to and i but in these situations i can't it's like, <laughs> no but it's, it's ridiculous this looks like a job for a brown person yeah, but, but it shouldn't have like to be white lady <laughs> <laughs> look i don't want to keep you too long because i know you got stuff to do yeah. so um if you want to let people know where you can get them any last words uh, or Words yeah, of advice for people. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. We're Unsafe Space. Mm-hmm. And Obeyed mentioned we have two shows. We do Deprogrammed, which is specifically about my old ideology, the social justice ideology. And then we also do Daily Kafefus, the live show, Mondays and Fridays, where we talk about whatever's in the news. Um, but thank you so much. Oh, we have a book club, too. Speaking of, uh, we just read Ordinary Men, which is all about how you get you're talking about mm. people who do evil thinking they're doing good. Mm. It's how you get ordinary people to commit atrocious acts of evil. It was about a reserve police battalion um, that was sent from Germany that was sent to Poland during the Holocaust and was tasked with exterminating, you know, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people. And it was, it's excruciating to read, but it's also really important right now, especially when you get to the end part with the analysis where it talks about, you know, they underwent, in addition to their training as police officers and all the physical training, they underwent weekly indoctrination. I wrote down the name of this workshop you mentioned in Seattle, racial superiority and whiteness. They were going to seminars like that every week. Okay. Like they were being indoctrinated every week Um, and it's very relevant. But so yeah, we have a book club. You can find out about the book club at unsafespace.com if you want to join. I will. Okay. Just on that. If there's a book you guys are going to do in your book club, it's called the ballad of Abu Ghraib. It's by Philip okay. Gra- by Philip Gravich. Now, okay. uh, there's also a documentary that was done separately by this guy named Errol Morris. Errol and Philip worked on the two kind of together. Now they went through like millions. I, I think it was I, I can't remember. It was like like millions of like hours of footage, basically. Like they interviewed everyone in those in the Abu Ghraib prison, like you know. And then he starts talking about the pictures. Like there was that one picture. I, I remember this specifically. There's one picture of one, a naked, uh, you know, whatever terrorist or whatever in the cell in the prison, yeah. except he had a poncho on. And that picture went out, and everyone was freaking out because it is a horrific picture. 
But yeah. if you step back, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> it's not COVID. If you step back, if you step back and look what that picture actually was, one of the hardest guys, one of the hardest prison guards or whatever, like MPs in that cell block, he, like this guy was an absolute asshole. He saw this guy shivering because it was winter in Baghdad and it was cold and the guy was naked in his cell. So he gave him a poncho. The poncho was an act of kindness, but mm. you saw the picture and it still looks bad. I'm not saying, I'm not def- like Philip Gravich does not defend the, what these people did. He goes, tells you how the system had gotten so screwed up, like how the prison went from civilian, you know, civilians who were ex-wardens, ex-prison guards who were trained, who came and actually managed a prison as opposed to MPs who'd already done one year. And they were, they were, uh, I forget the, I think it's called stopgap where they were, um, it's not stopgap, but I can't, I forget the term where they were refused to go back after the rotation kept on extra. So they're, they're already been there longer than they should have. And they mm-hmm. get sent into something they don't know anything about. So like all these videos that we're seeing, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you're only seeing that little snippet. You don't know mm-hmm. what happened before. You don't know what happened after. Like take everything with a grain of salt. Like, it's, it's a really good book and it gives I you. I wrote it down. Yeah. Like, I will check it out. Yeah. Anyways, I should let the you go. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes, um, sometimes, or like, there's a thing called standard operating procedures. I he might have changed the name, but I've got it as the Ballad of Abu Ghraib. Okay. Um, but anyways, thanks a lot for coming on, and thank thanks you everyone for having me. Yeah, it was no fun problem. To talk to you again, maybe. yeah, no problem. And thank everyone for listening. I'll be back. <laughs>